Hello, everyone. I'm Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm here today with Professor Akrit Sodi of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the Wilmer Eye Institute. Akrit, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. You've done some very interesting work looking at tapering patients off of treatment and looking at biomarkers associated with treatment efficacy and differences in weaning behavior using different agents. So we'd like to really talk about your your work. You had two, two very interesting papers in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. So why don't you just outline to us what you've been interested in and what your hypothesis was? Sure. Um, well, I guess as a, a background, um, as we discussed before we started, I'm a clinician scientist, so much of what I do is in the lab, um, but I am a, a retina specialist, and I have a particular interest in um, learning how to identify uh, how to best treat patients with retinal vascular disease, including uh, macular degeneration, um, and how to optimize treatment for each individual patient. Uh, and what I had started to do when I first began practicing was um, looking at the different treatment approaches which at the time were basically monthly treatment, uh, treat and extend, and also uh, PRN treatment, and uh, trying to decide which amongst those, as many young retina specialists do, um, best suited their clinical needs. And I liked the fact that the PRN treatment uh, reduced the number of injections that patients received, um, but at the same time, it um, maintained the frequent visits, which a lot of my patients didn't like. Uh, and it was also um, sort of more of a reactive approach. Uh, and it made the assumption that if someone was inactive, um, they would continue to be inactive uh, until you saw them again. Um, I like the treat and extend approach because it seemed to be more personalized, um, giving patients treatment um, based on uh, how they uh, responded to treatment in the past. Um, but I also recognize they, there was, for patients being overtreated, if you assume that some of the patients didn't require treatment at every visit. Um, so over the first few years of practice, I developed uh, an approach that other people had also um, been exploring, which um, I termed treat and extend, pause and monitor, where I effectively started with a treat and extend approach. And if I could extend the interval between visits out to 12 weeks, uh, starting with uh, three, four-week injections, uh, followed by an extension of two weeks at each subsequent visit, assuming that um, the cordelina vascularization was quiescent, um, I would hold the treatment and I would begin what I call the treatment pause, uh, sort of watching them closely initially and then extending the interval to watch them every um, 12 weeks. And that allowed me to um, personalize the treatment with the treat and extend approach, but still take advantage of the PRN treatment, uh, withholding treatment if I didn't feel that the patients required it. So what did your study find? So in this retrospective study, we looked at those patients. Uh, and I should mention on top of that, I, I do uh, collect samples from my patients uh, for various studies, looking for novel factors we identify in the lab uh, or using screens to identify um, proteins that might contribute to either disease progression, um, uh, poor response to treatment, or um, potentially just serve as biomarkers to identify which patients best respond. 
Um, we initially looked at the patients um, that we had treated at a one satellite office where I um, saw patients, and we noted that um, the patients sort of broke down into four categories. Uh, patients that required, or effectively maybe three, patients who required treatment every month, just patients who failed treatment extension, um, patients who could be maintained on treatment with no fluid anywhere from every six to, to 10 weeks, and then patients we could effectively wean off treatment. Um, and in the initial study uh, published in uh, 2022, uh, we found that the breakdown was about 20% of patients could be um, fell in the category where they required monthly treatment. Um, and about a third uh, of patients could be weaned off treatment with the remainder needing, needing treatment regularly, but responding well to treatment. And this was using a combination of uh, available anti-VEGF therapies. Uh, in that first study, our interest was in trying to define whether a patient fell into one of those categories uh, early in the treatment process. So um, we defined the patients based on how they uh, responded to treatment after a year. Um, that's when they were given the designation of uh, weaned if they were 30 weeks post-treatment and still quiet, um, or uh, potentially requiring monthly or more frequent treat or less frequent treatments. Uh, we went back to our bank and we uh, obtained samples that we had collected very early in the treatment process before we had these patients defined. And we looked uh, through proteomics uh, initially in an unbiased study um, to look for markers that could predict uh, which of those categories patients fell into. Um, and we found that there were distinct differences in the protein expression pattern of patients who required monthly treatment compared to patients who uh, could be effectively weaned off treatment. Um, we also identified a protein um, that was interesting to us because it was a component of drusen and implicated in dry AMD, uh, ApoB100, um, but its behavior, according to um, its expression profile in our patients, suggested a paradoxical protective role, uh, and we corroborated that with um, mouse studies. Uh, that was the initial paper. Uh, in a sort of sister paper, we published a paper in JCI Insight a few months later where we took a candidate approach uh, instead of looking at um, proteomics and sort of screening through all the different proteins, we selected proteins that we thought might help define those different patient populations. Um, and we focused on, on proteins that were regulated by a transcription factor that regulates VEGF in patients with macular degeneration and ischemic retinal disease, uh, hypoxia-inducible factor, which is the transcription factor I work on in my lab, um, and we began with angiopoietin-2 since it was um, and remains sort of the hot protein as sort of the second hit uh, if you're going to target VEGF and another protein that seems to be the one that most people are targeting, the angiopoietin-2 uh, tie-2 um, pathway. And what we found was that the levels uh, were elevated in patients with um, AMD compared to controls, uh, but they were at similar levels um, in each of the different patient populations. So whether they responded well to treatment or responded poorly, um, there was no difference in the levels, um, whether that was before or after treatment. Um, so that suggested to us that although it might be a good target, it certainly wouldn't be a good biomarker. Uh, and on top of that, there were probably other proteins that might be regulating or contributing to the poor efficacy of uh, current anti-VEGF therapies uh, 
in AMD patients. So we looked at a couple of other proteins and we identified one called angiopoietin-like 4 that we had previously identified in patients with um, ischemic retinal disease, specifically diabetic eye disease. Uh, and we found that that protein actually was predictive of whether or not patients required more frequent treatments. So in patients who required monthly treatment, angiopoietin-like 4 was uh, significantly higher than in patients who require treatment uh, every 12 weeks or longer. Um, the remainder of that study looked at, uh, uh, using mouse models, uh, how exactly angiopoietin-like 4 contributes to the promotion of cortileo vascularization uh, and could potentially serve as a target. Um, but the two studies together, we think, um, demonstrate how uh, there are other players uh, in uh, wet AMD uh, and they can contribute to um, response to treatment and potentially be used to predict response to current treatments. What, so what biomarker do you think is the most promising in looking at uh, patients who would be able to be weaned from therapy? So uh, we, we haven't identified the set of biomarkers that we could move forward with. In that um, second paper, uh, which was by Yu Chin and colleagues, uh, we identified angiopoietin-like 4, and in combination with uh, VEGF levels um, pre-treatment, um, it was reasonably predictive of patients who required monthly treatment. So the patients who couldn't be um, have a treatment extension, if the protein levels were high, um, there was a, with reasonable sensitivity and specificity, you could um, identify those patients, at least distinguish them from patients who uh, could be extended. It wouldn't be at the level where it would be appropriate to use in the clinic, but it suggests that maybe uh, what we like to define as the HIF secretome, uh, other HIF-regulated proteins in addition to VEGF may give us a hint as to how a patient is going to respond to anti-VEGF therapy. Mm -hmm. So what percent of patients were able to be weaned off of therapy? So in the initial paper with old treatments um, used, we were able to get 31 percent of patients at year one um, who were successfully entering a treatment pause, which was, as I said, defined as 30 weeks or longer of uh, no activity. So they returned after 12 weeks, they were inactive, no fluid, no reduction in vision. They returned, and that was the first time the treatment was held. They returned again in six weeks for a, just to check on them um, to see if an extension uh, led to uh, reaccumulation of fluid. Uh, and if they were dry at that visit, they went another 12 weeks. Uh, and from that time forward, they were followed every 12 weeks. If they went through those three visits and had no activity, it was at that point that we defined them as being effectively weaned or entering a treatment pause. So that was 31% in the first paper, the JCI paper um, of Cow et al. In, um, J in January of 2022. We subsequently followed that up with a um, a paper this year uh, in which we looked at the specific therapy that the patient received. In this case, it was either Avastin or ILEA. And we um, looked at whether or not that influenced the success rate of um, extending the interval between visits and also weaning patients off treatment. So, uh, and what were the differences? Well, the, I, I should tell you, going in, I was anticipating that there wouldn't be any differences. I actually um, anticipated, since they both target VEGF, um, and that prior data suggested that 
Um, both were similar in their efficacy, albeit um, ILEA seemed to last a little bit longer and was maybe more effective in a subset of patients. Um, I anticipated if there was a difference, it would be, as prior reports have suggested in other settings, modest um, an advantage to ILEA. Uh, and what we found is a lot of the things we initially assumed were true. Um, during the initial monthly treatment, which every patient got, whether they had Avastin or ILEA, um, patients did similarly. The patients receiving aflibercept or ILEA did slightly better in terms of vision gain, um, five, uh, five letters or more, but overall about the same. During the extension period, uh, which occurred after month three, um, that's when there was a distinction between the two. The patients receiving um, ILEA were able to be extended further than the patients receiving Avastin, suggesting that the Avastin patients would fail more often with the treatment extension. And that correlated with a increased percent of patients with uh, vision loss during that period in the Avastin group. By one year, um, when patients were all uh, at sort of more of a steady state, or at least approaching a steady state where we had achieved a sense of how um, they would respond to anti-VEGF therapy uh, and their interval was a little bit more regular, um, all those differences sort of washed out. Um, ILEA was still, um, the treatment interval was longer uh, compared to Avastin and that's consistent with prior reports and that's what we had expected. Um, but the visual acuity, the OCT findings, everything else was the same. And I should mention that everything was the same prior to the studies, uh, prior to initiating treatment. Uh, and so at that point, we thought, well, they, they seem to be pretty similar. The advantage of ILEA and very similar to prior reports um, was observed, but it was modest. And it was based on a slight extension of the treatment interval. Um, however, when we looked at the success of weaning patients off therapy, um, this is again using the 30-week um, time interval as the definition of a patient who was weaned off therapy, uh, we saw that um, the number of patients who could be weaned off uh, Avastin was about 15% at year one, um, and that would be year one plus the 30 weeks, so it could right. extend as, as far as a year and a half. Um, and for the ILEA, it actually was 43%. So there was about a threefold increase in the number of patients who were effectively weaned off treatment or at least entered a treatment pause uh, with the ILEA compared to the Avastin. And that was really not expected, or at least I didn't expect that to be the case. Um, when we looked at the two-year data, uh, albeit with a smaller group of patients, um, those numbers um, were similar for ILEA, it climbed over 50%, and for Avastin, it did get to 25 or 27% at that stage. So um, the Avastin didn't catch up, it improved, um, but there was a clear difference between the two. And that was also reflected in, not in the VEGF levels, which we checked in the patient's aqueous, but it was reflected in the OCT um, findings, similar to the first study we did um, uh, two mass readers of all the OCTs at months one, two, three, six, and 12. Uh, and we noted that the patients who are weaned off treatment were very rapidly brought to uh, no fluid. So no interstitial fluid, no subretinal fluid. Um, Pre-treatment, they all appeared the same, but the patients who were weaned off treatment uh, within one to two treatments, um, they were rapidly brought to no fluid. The patients who weren't weaned off treatment uh, were unable to get to that stage. Um, or a large percentage were not able to get to that stage. 
with the Avastin versus ILEA, we found that ILEA was much more effective even after one treatment at getting patients to no fluid. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that's why they ended up being um, weaned off treatment, but we think that the initial um, ability of ILEA in this case to dry up the patient's um, CNV, or at least to um, cause some quiescence early in the treatment process might um, influence the success later. And that might be why Avastin, even after two years, didn't seem to catch up. Why the difference? So that's the big question. That's something we're looking at now. Um, we've subsequently done um, a series of proteomics uh, studies looking at patients treated with Avastin versus ILEA um, and trying to identify um, either markers or maybe an explanation for why. Um, at, at this stage, and it's purely conjecture, we think it, it, it it's probably one of a combination of things. Or um, It's likely that even though we didn't see a difference in the VEGF levels um, in the aqueous, it's likely that VEGF binds stronger to um, uh, ILEA or at least longer, or the ILEA lasts longer. Um, and certainly at the level of the retina, and we can't speak to the um, uh, the results if we had looked at retinal um, VEGF instead of uh, aqueous VEGF. Uh, we, so we do think the binding to VEGF plays an important role. The um, How long the, uh, uh, the uh, ILEA is in the eye is probably uh, influencing um, its efficacy. But we also um, speculate that maybe the fact that ILEA targets more than just VEGF, um, that mm -hmm. might also influence its efficacy. Uh, that we don't know for sure. We you know, would be curious about ferisimab, for example, as it does target a, a second target, uh, whether that too would have a similar effect. We speculate also that some of the benefits seen with ferisimab, the ability to extend up to four months might be a similar ability to induce quiescence. It's possible that you know, the same number of patients, up to 50%, don't really need subsequent treatment, um, but that needs to be studied. Well, I think there, you know, there are three, three major points here that I think are, are noteworthy. First of all, you've looked at biomarkers that might predict which patients are going to be able to pause. You've identified a percent of patients that can pause and you've identified differences in the underlying treatment to the pause. So is, is neovascular AMD a chronic disease in every patient? So I think, uh, you know, having um, heard some of the response to the paper, I think that that's one of the concerns is, you know, holding treatment and, you know, what's the consequence of holding treatment when AMD is a chronic disease. And I'd like to point out that I, I would suggest that diabetes is also a chronic disease. Retinal vein occlusions, certainly ischemic retinal vein occlusions, also chronic diseases. Um, and the PRN approach is a weaning approach. You effectively, or at least a stopping of treatment approach. So although I, I think that the word weaning may elicit a lot of concern, it, there's a lot of data in the literature to support the fact that in wet AMD, um, there are patients who don't require monthly treatment or even bi-monthly or every four-month treatment forever. Um, and the two important questions, the simple important question is, you know, who are they? And I think that's a pretty obvious question. And, you know, we would like to try to help identify them with biomarkers. 
I think the more important or the more interesting question to me is why? What is it that's going on in one group of patients' eyes and not in the other? Or what is anti-VEGF therapy doing in one group of patients but not in the other that allows this group to be weaned off treatment? Um, and that's really the question we're trying to explore. Um, but is, is, is AMD a chronic disease? Absolutely. Are these patients in, you know, using a cancer term, complete remission? Probably not. I mean, I, I think that these patients are all at risk of a recurrence. And I think we need to be aware that they're at risk of recurrence. But I think, you know, in just in the last two years, there's been enough studies demonstrating that who will experience uh, vision loss. Uh, and we know that prophylactic treatment with um, anti-VEGF therapy similarly um, doesn't prevent the development of cortical vascularization or progression from dry to wet macular degeneration. Um, so in the absence of a clinical trial really measuring um, a, a treatment protocol in which there's uh, a treatment pause versus one where there's maintenance therapy until that um, clinical trial is performed, I don't think we can say one way or the other whether or not um, which approach is, is safer or more effective. Um, I, I think at this stage, I'm comfortable with close monitoring, holding treatment, as I would with a PRN protocol, uh, using this treat and extend pause and monitor protocol. Are you going to continue these studies looking at some of the newer agents that are said to decrease treatment burden? Uh, we, we certainly do have an interest. I think this is at a stage where, you know, I'm hopeful that some of the larger networks would take over looking that at um, an approach to wean patients off treatment um, is part of one of their protocols to include it as an arm in one of their protocols or whether in newer clinical trials evaluating drugs would include them. Um, as I said previously, I'm, my focus is really on um, looking at contributing um, proteins and genes in um, either mediating the development of uh, wet AMD or its response to anti-VEGF therapy, um, and less so on clinical trials, although that's something we are exploring at this stage. Well, listen, thank you so much for your participation on retina synthesis. I think your work has been really indeed provocative. And uh, I look forward to hearing more from the lab. I, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me about it. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you.